Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 031. Last time we finished with um, book 8, and so now this in this episode we're going to consider Homer's Iliad, book 9, and this will likely be a part 1. And so, in book 8, what did we see? Well, we saw Zeus ban the other gods from the battlefield because he indicated that he was going to be the instrument of fate, he understood the will of fate, and that the other gods could just get in his way. He then illustrated this very poignantly by giving us a metaphor about um, a golden rope being dropped from heaven. And were the other gods to grab that golden rope, they would certainly not be able to pull him even one inch, but were he to pull it, he would pull up the earth and sea as well. We then saw Hera, though agreeing at that time with him, conspire once with Poseidon and once with Athena to go onto the battlefield to immediately attempt to subvert the will of Zeus. Both times, however, she is kept from doing so, one by a flat-out refusal by Poseidon, and one time by um, Zeus sending Iris to give a very stern rebuke both to Hera and to Athena, threatening them with being hit by a thunderbolt with the added threat that it would take them long, ten years to recover, with the added threat that they would never be allowed back on Olympus for subverting his a direct command in such an um, obvert way or obvious way. We then saw Teucris, the half-brother of Aias, have an Aristea, but it had that broken by a rock thrown by Hector, though he was taken out of the battle with the help of his brother Aias the Greater. We then saw Hector do very well in the battle, while several Achaean champions, including Idomeneus and Odysseus, fled the battlefield. Diomedes, too, protected Nestor and had an attempt on Hector's life, though he failed to do so. Recall also Hector had the light motif this last, <laughs> or theme, this last book of having multiple of his um, charioteers, Eniopius, as well as Archetolemus, killed until we settled on Cabrianes. And so uh, a brutal theme for him to have to live out, but he's, he's on to his third charioteer in, uh, uh, in the same battle. So that's good for Hector, and well, difficult for Hector as well, and Perhaps good for Capriones, but it may not look good for him, seeing as Hector seems to have a target on his back. And frankly, Hector as the head of the opposing army and thus the symbol of the opposing dominance hierarchy and thus the symbol of the ultimate trophy to be won from the other side. Well, he does have a target on his back since these are cultures called Kleos cultures or glory cultures. And so to kill him and to strip him of his armor in this particular campaign would be ultimate glory for one. And so largely Diomedes and Aias the Greater will be competing for that glory throughout, um, uh, throughout the next several books of the Iliad, though it will ultimately fall to Achilleus to win that glory. So, Book 9. The Achaeans, in general, in mass, are feeling bad because they finally felt their first ever stinging loss. And the conspicuous absence of Achilleus is present in the minds of all. And so Agamemnon, who we've noticed has been improving and rising to his position as leader, is also feeling the weight of this loss. And so he assembles a night assembly with the other captains. At this assembly, he shares just how dispirited he is. And he suggests for a second time though this time in earnest, that potentially with the Trojans now 
uh, camped right outside of their gates. Perhaps it's time for the Achaeans, though it be shameful, to sail home. And he, he insists that this is because Zeus has now turned against him, though he had promised that Agamemnon would win this war. And so he gives good reason, though perhaps a cowardly reason as well. What is clear, however, is that Agamemnon is dispirited, and so the men are stricken to silence after hearing this for a good bit of time. But then, who should speak up but the man who's learning to speak up and learning to say what's good and what's honest and what's true? That's Diomedes. He speaks up and says, if you want to go Agamemnon, well, that's perfectly fine. But I think many of the Achaeans will stay until we finish this business with, with Troy. And in fact, if, even if many of the Achaeans leave, and it's just me, Diomedes, and my charioteer, Thenelus, well, I think even we will still fight to the last man, uh, or until Troy falls. And so Diomedes shows great bravery, and not only in the content of this word suggesting that he would fight under adverse circumstances rather than present fairly okay circumstances, though more adverse than they were even a day ago. He also shows bravery in speaking up against Agamemnon in assembly. And so, well, Nestor's symbol of wisdom <clears throat> speaks up behind Diomedes and says that Diomedes has spoken a very good word, but since Diomedes is young, and in fact so young that he could be Nestor's youngest son. He has left his argument incomplete. So first and foremost, Nestor will suggest that the men eat a good dinner and they send out their sentries to guard the wall, which is an especially an alert thing for him to suggest since the Trojans are, for the first time so far as we know, camping outside the Trojan city, which means that they are, after their first ever victory, feeling as confident as they have ever felt and in fact, indicating that confidence through their new spatial awareness or their new spatial positioning in relation to the Achaeans. This is new territory for both of them, but this is positive, hopeful, <clears throat> dopaminergic territory for the Trojans. And this is fearful, anxiety-inducing, <clears throat> threat-response-producing uh, territory for the Achaeans. And so Nestor suggests that they all eat and calm down very quickly, but then after they've put away their hunger and their thirst, after having done things appropriately and sacrificed to the gods and having done things in proper order, he then speaks to Agamemnon. And though he says he will begin and end with Agamemnon in an alpha and an omega sort of way, suggesting that wisdom and the king should go hand in hand, left into right, um, he said he's very critical of Agamemnon. And for good reason. He suggests that since this night will make or break the Achaean effort, that it is certainly Agamemnon's fault that the proud Achilleus is no longer fighting and that he stirs or stews in his own anger, waiting for recompense from Agamemnon for the slight. And showing that he's in fact growing and continuing to grow, Agamemnon says that he must have been mad to be persuaded by his own heart's anger in the moment when he demanded Briseis from Achilleus, his greatest fighter, and that because he was mad, he would make a kingly recompense. And what is the kingly recompense? 
Well, he offers, first and foremost, Briseis, the aggrieved concubine, whom he makes sure to say he has not lain with, though it is the natural thing between man and woman, he says. He also offers ten talents of gold. And a talent of gold, you should know, is between, somewhere between 50 and 70 pounds of gold, so it's 500 to 700 pounds of gold. Uh, 20 cauldrons, 7 uh, tripods. These are uh, good things to have while you're on campaign. A tripod is a three-footed mechanism on which you would hang a cauldron and you would put a flame underneath. We have similar sorts of things if you go camping and it helps you to steam and boil your food. Um, 12 horses, and these horses are racing horses, which can win additional prize, glory, and money to one, and that's made sure to be pointed out. Seven women of Lesbos, and if or when <coughs> Troy is destroyed, well then Agamemnon will give 20 Trojan women all those almost as beautiful as Helen, so all those simply beneath the beauty of Helen, whom of course will go to, or who, of course, will go to um, Menelaus. And then he even says that he'll offer one of his daughters who take on new names in the Iliad different from the mythological tradition. They take on the names Iphianasa, Chrysothemis, and Laodike. Chrysothemis maintains her name, but Laodike um, does not, as well as Iphianasa, who's often Iphigenia. And so Laodike is often portrayed as Electra, who helps Orestes to take vengeance on Aegisthus and Clytemestra after Agamemnon returns to betrayal at home after the events of the Iliad and the conclusion of the Trojan War. And so, additionally, his son will be offered uh, Orestes as a friend to Achilleus. So Achilleus will be considered equal to the son or the future of Agamemnon's uh, legacy, though there is a slight subordination there, one will note. But of course, Agamemnon is here also giving gifts as recompense, indicating that he, like Santa, like the divine, is the one who gives the gifts. And as Aristotle says, it is the great-souled man who wishes to give rather than to receive noble gifts. And so, even seven townships after Iliad, or Ilion Falls, will be given to Achilles, vastly extending his reach and wealth and strength. And so this is a mighty or kingly gift to be offered to him. And Nestor says, this is a fine, fine idea, Agamemnon. And so moving forward, let's think about how to do this. And well, what does Nestor suggest that they do? Well, let's put together an embassy, three people to go there and well Nestor uh, um, at first I think <laughs> he offers the opportunity for each person to or for a choice to be made in committee about which three men go but he ends up making that decision immediately himself and so who does he choose well, the first person who comes to mind is Phoenix and who is Phoenix well as I've told you before Odi uh, Homer often changes mythological stories, and so in the traditional mythological stories about Achilles, he is raised by a centaur named Chiron, who teaches him the arts of hunting, music, uh, um, healing, um, uh, poetry, as well as uh, war, war and war strategy, and how to battle, how to fight. And so 
Homer, however, changes that role to Phoenix, who was a Myrmidon who, in his youth, due to um, a, a fairly unscrupulous move on his and his, his mother's part, gets exiled from his home, and we'll talk about that when he gives his speech to Achilleus later in this book. Well, he, he is chosen because he was the teacher, the mentor, the surrogate father to Achilleus, the one who could be kind to him and present. And so Phoenix is chosen. This is the first time he's really mentioned, but he'll be mentioned a couple more times in the text after this. And in particular, Achilleus will indicate his tremendous love of Phoenix by offering him a chance to stay with him, and in fact mentioning that he would never make him stay or constrain him by force, only by persuasion, indicating that since he would not use his massive power on, on whom he even used, or which he almost even used on Agamemnon once, who was the symbol of the dominance hierarchy, uh, which would plunge everybody into chaos, well, that indicates tremendous and profound respect because he respects Phoenix like a family member in a way that he does not even respect the king, Agamemnon. And so this is a good choice by Nestor. The next person he chooses is Aias the Greater. And why does he choose Aias the Greater? Well, let's think. Aias the Greater is the first cousin to Achilles. He's also the tallest, handsomest, and um, strongest of the fighters, just like Achilles. This man is essentially like a mirror image to Achilles, very much like a Patroclus, um, and, and also blood-related. So if anybody has the interest of Achilles in mind, it's going to be his cousin, who's just like him, who also happens to be part of his family and shares in his glory to that extent. So, he's a good, good idea. Well, counter to him is Odysseus, and Odysseus will actually lead the foray, and when Nestor gives advice and coaches each of the individuals, it will say that he spends the most time with Odysseus, indicating that Odysseus can receive the most amount of intelligent perspective, and that this is why he's the leader of the effort to Achilles. It's essentially, if Odysseus can convince Achilles to return, then that is equivalent to Achilles seeing reason. And so the three people who are going to go on the embassy to Achilles are Phoenix, Aias the Greater, and Odysseus. Nestor coaches them on what to say, spends the most time with Odysseus, and then Odysseus in the company of the two men and two heralds, Odios and Euripides, the ones from book one who first went to collect Briseis, they all go down to Achilles' tent. And so what is Achilles doing down there? Well, he's playing the lyre. He's apparently a very talented musician with his best friend Patroclus leaning right next to him. And so when he sees the, these three men immediately in front of him, he exclaims in surprise. He's amazed to see them. And he claims that these are three of his best friends. And so he's very excited to see them. He has Patroclus get up. He, Automedon, and Achilles then prepare a feast and sacrifice, and in fact it's Patroclus who makes the sacrifice, and this is meaningful for several reasons, including one that will happen in Book 16. Just keep in mind the fact that Achilles specifically says to Patroclus to make the sacrifice before this dinner. Yes, in fact, if I read 
from lines 216 or so to 221. This is nice. Patroclus took the bread and set it out on a table in fair baskets while Achilles served the meats. Thereafter he himself sat over against the godlike Odysseus against the further wall and told his companion Patroclus to sacrifice to the gods. And he threw the firstlings in the fire. It will be significant that Patroclus is sacrificing here for Achilles because he will do so in a more abstract or less abstract form uh, later on in the text. And so they all set themselves to eating. While they're eating, Aias the Greater gives a nod to Phoenix, which Odysseus perceives, and then Odysseus jumps into the first attempt to convince Achilles to return. And this is an interesting moment because I've, I've often wondered whether there are two ways to interpret this, or rather, there are two ways to interpret this, and I'm not sure particularly which one to understand it to mean. So, Aias nodding to Phoenix might indicate that Aias is indicating to Phoenix that he should speak first, and this is supported by the idea that, for one, Aias is nodding directly at Phoenix, and for two, because Nestor chose Phoenix first, and Phoenix will in fact give the longest speech of any of the men, indicating that he has the closest relationship to Achilles, and perhaps should speak first because he can make the deepest and closest connection. Now, the other way of looking at this is that because Odysseus was chosen out as leader and most intelligent of the men going, though he doesn't have the closest connection to Achilles, that perhaps he was supposed to observe Aias making some sort of sign and then launch into his own attempt uh, to convince Achilles. And this is supported by the idea, or by the fact that Odysseus was chosen out for his intelligence specifically, and Nestor spent more time talking to him than to the other two. However, I'm, just, I'm not as convinced by that point of view. I think perhaps this might be a case of Odysseus attempting to do over much, that he moves a little too quickly, a little too soon, and that it indicates that uh, as talented as he is as a speaker, he does not necessarily understand what will move Achilles, or rather what is going to move Achilles will be more sentimental or emotional in nature, seeing as his uh, grievance is more emotional in nature and less rational and uh, come less as a, um, in, uh, come less as an argument that makes perfect sense in a conscious way, though fails to stir one's heart. And so there are many rational arguments for why to give up one's anger, economic reasons, and they'll be made to Achilles, in fact, uh, economic reasons to him. He'll receive fewer gifts if he stays angry, glorious reasons. He'll receive less glory if he stays angry, even pity, pitiful reasons. He'll, he, more of his friends will die, and things will happen that cannot be undone if he stays angry. And all of these will be very rational and excellent explanations, and not only suggested by Odysseus, but also by Phoenix as well, and even by Aias the Greater. And yet, all these intelligent Athena-esque arguments will fail to move the anger of Achilles, suggesting just how intractable he has become. In fact, he'll be compared explicitly to Hades, the god of death, in Hades' aspect as the pitiless god, the god who will always take you when you die. And so never ever changes his will. And so just as Zeus's will is eternal, immortal, and immovable in that it represents fate, so is Hades is in, in that he represents the absolute fact of human mortality. 
And so Odysseus launching into his speech first and foremost lays out the fact that Achilles is going to be treated like a god by, by the Achaeans. And, and he, in fact, here's some indication that Agamemnon is going to offer him all these gifts, all these talents of gold, all these women, all these citadels, his own daughter, uh, uh, Orestes as a friend. He's going to raise him up above all all others in the way that Achilles surely feels that he deserves, and which in fact he does deserve. And so even though Zeus is favoring Hector right now, or in fact because Zeus is favoring Hector, Achilles should come to fight. And and he even he even throws in a small barb or, or jab. He says, you know, uh, your father when he sent you here, and uh, Achilles has quite some respect for his father. And uh, in fact, it will come out that his father actually did explicitly say to him when he first came here, and Nestor will reveal this fact to us, that, um, uh, or Odysseus, I'll, and I'll get back to you on that one. He, uh, he says, oh, when, when your father first sent you here, he said, first and foremost, be most preeminent in valor and battle. And so, what was said to Patroclus, and yes, now I recall it was in fact Nestor who said this, um, the, what Patroclus, the best friend to Achilles, who is slightly older than he is, because he is slightly older than uh, Achilles and therefore has had more time to acquire more experience, he should, he should be better in counsel and slightly wiser than Achilles and to, to help him temper his moods. And that will actually come up later on when Nestor is attempting to convince Patroclus to don the armor of Achilles, if Achilles will not return to the fighting, because the f the fighting has turned so grim after five Achaean champions have been injured and taken off the battlefield, and so the anger of Achilles, as you can tell, is a tremendous thing, and so such is the power of resentment, and to uh, to feel oneself uh, turned on by the entire world, and so Odysseus, in his speech, offers Achilles many things. But as I told you in the Buddhist cone, the story of the Buddha who had the, the murderer read his last request, which was to cut off a branch, but then he said, now reattach it. The, one severed, one symbolic act of taking Briseis was enough to shake Achilles' faith not only in Agamemnon, but uh, in the fairness of the entire justice of the world. And so now no amount of material things are going to restore his faith in uh, this honor system. He is, he is in the desert of the real, you might say. He's, he's outside of Egypt. He's in a place of formless chaos in the dark night of the soul. And so, Odysseus finishes his speech by attempting to persuade Achilles with pity as well. But if you're not persuaded by these gifts or by the chance to defeat and destroy Hector, though Zeus is helping him, which would make your killing of him all the more glorious. Pity us, pity the men who fight alongside you. And so he makes several appeals, three major ones, to Achilles to restore his glory and honor through the gifts that are a major recompense, far more than what was initially taken from Achilles. Uh, uh, um, uh, an appeal to his glory and his glory seeking for the attempt to kill Hector, which would, of course, offer him ultimate glory in some respects. And we'll have to see whether that holds true under, under differing, differing circumstances later. And also an appeal to pity for his fellow man, which, of course, is a very powerful appeal, an emotional appeal.
Well, Achilleus responds extraordinarily, pithily in a very famous way. He says, first and foremost to Odysseus, don't take this personally. I'm going to respond as I would respond to anybody as the heart within me tells me to. And so understand that I'm not simply directing this at you, but for as I detest the doorways of death, I detest that man who hides one thing in the depths of his heart and speaks forth another, 9, 3, 12 to 3, 14. And so it used to be the case that I believe that he was talking directly to Odysseus there through the skin of his teeth, understanding that Odysseus was the sort of man whom Edmund Spencer in his fairy tale will call one who speaks with two tongues, one who can speak with his heart and with his mind, indicating that he can speak like a uh, one with a devil or an angel on one's shoulder. One can speak the truth or lies because he understands the truth. And so he's protean in that respect. Um, but now I think it's clear actually that he's speaking about Agamemnon. And so oh, actually the thrust of Achilleus' speech will be directed against Agamemnon. And so I think what he's indicating here is that though Agamemnon is offering in symbolic gesture something back to Achilleus, that um, the spirit behind the gesture is a lie, that he is not restoring that which he took because he full well knows what it is that he actually took from Achilleus, which is certainty in the fairness of the structure of his social reality, of the dominance uh, hierarchy. He, he cannot receive that sort of faith from anyone, even from the fact that Zeus is enacting his will based on a fair trade agreement made between Thetis, his mother, and Zeus. The fact that Zeus is now honoring an agreement from his mother on his own behalf is not enough to convince Achilleus in all his resentment and self-pity that uh, his position within the world is secure. And perhaps, actually, he's realizing something interesting there, too, because uh, it's as if he's realizing his mortality for the first time, because, of course, the position within the world is not secure, because he's immortal. He is a mortal. He is a human. He is doomed to die. And so that means that he will go down to the bottom of the dominance hierarchy at some point because he will not be alive and will not have the chance to defend his position. And so, in losing position within his own eyes to Agamemnon, he has suffered a symbolic death already. And so he further indicates this by saying, by, by showing that he has fallen into a dripping nihilism. Fate is the same. For the man who holds back, the same if he works hard, we are all held in a single honor. The brave with the weaklings, 9, 315 to 330. And those were actually lines 318 to 319. And so he indicates that what's the point of living? Because the, the heroes and the cowards, regardless of how they live, how hard they fight, or how much talent they have, they all end up in the same place. And one might understand that there's a sort of argument that Achilles would, would be leveling in the 20th century against systems like socialism or communism. What would be the point of, say, working hard if I were allocated the same amount of resources as everybody else? I made more of those resources and then received no sort of just recompense. Very interesting sort of argument. But so, Achilles seems to be suggesting that in the eyes of Hades, in the eyes of death, 
all men are equal and that he will take all of them and regardless of what it is that they accomplish on earth. And so often I've asked my students whether they're convinced by this sort of argument and they always say no and I'm always surprised which I suppose indicates that they're far better than I am which is good. And so they say no because Mr. Schmidt if if the afterlife is the same for all individuals then it is all the more important how one lives this life because in this life therefore one has a chance to be distinct whereas one is simply a vague shadow in the world to come and in fact that's sort of very interesting because one might say well what does Dante have to say about that sort of thing uh, he actually has his pilgrim go up to heaven and so uh, does he actually locate the important spot for one to be on earth or in heaven and well actually he brings up over and over again how necessary it is for one to be famous on earth in order to win a spot in paradise in fact I was recently in seminar on this and I think I brought this up in a conversation with Mr. West Chance but it was Canto 18 lines 31 to 33 I even remember them and so spirits are blessed who below before they came to heaven were of immense fame so that they would be spoiled for any muse and so the students often don't buy Achilles's argument at all they indicate that because life is short and potentially miserable that one ought to strive all the harder to circumscribe it with definite lim with with defined definitions or rather with with crisp edges and sharply made divisions and many colors and so that one's life rather than being a massa confusa being simply uh, a bunch of colors all poured onto each other and sort of a a, a hellish uh, Rothko scape that one in, instead make it like a Tibetan mandala that the the lamas make and so one can define one's life and in so defining one circumscribes one's position on the world or rather impresses one's position on the world like form onto matter or like the signet ring onto the being or onto the potential intellect of human nature and yet rather than recognizing this fact and how much more important it is to one's own personal legend in order to act in accordance with one's character and the destiny one wishes to live out Achilles is waiting for something from Agamemnon that he can't receive and so he'll actually continue to indicate this as he gets uh, angrier and angrier he'll suggest that he sacked 23 cities and each time he got the best gifts and the best women and he gave them all back out to Agamemnon and even though he had destroyed the cities as a symbol of Ares and chaos and disorder it was Agamemnon as a symbol of Zeus of order distributing out all the wealth to others considered more kingly than he was and that bothered him and then also <clears throat> he brings up and this is very important he says ah and I always sack those cities for the sake of these men's women and so are are only the sons of Atreus men who love their wives because well do I not love Briseis and hold duty towards her like I do to any woman who holds my bed? And so 
When Agamemnon takes Briseis from me, and only from me, singling me out for dishonor, though I am the, the one most befitting of honor, and he takes my woman from me, who is like my wife, is he not mirroring the exact same behavior, the same action, which precipitated, which began, which started, which gave reason for this war? And so, Achilles claims that Agamemnon has done to him precisely what Paris did to Menelaus and so has committed a, an act of war against Achilles. So how could he possibly fight for this man against whom he should rightly fight now and whom he almost uh, cut the head off of except for he was stopped by Athena? Reason. And in fact, he even adds that, you know, he would have to give me 10 times as much to get me five or 20. And in fact, even then it wouldn't be enough. And even if he gave me as many gifts as there were grains of sand, I would not return. And so two other quick things that Achilles says before we leave off from this time and, uh, and leave for part two, what we didn't cover in part one, is this. He mentions also that there are plenty of beautiful women in Hellas and Phthia whom he can marry, and he will not be marrying a daughter of Agamemnon. And so that's major. He says he, he refuses to mix his blood with the line of Agamemnon, though that would be the most stabilizing possible move on his part. The most royal house with the strongest house with a divine lineage would be a powerful and very wise move on his part, but that's not going to happen. And that doesn't even particularly matter because of the second piece of information I was going to share, which was that Achilles reveals here that he understands he has two destinies, that his mother has revealed to him that one destiny is the destiny in which he lives a short but glorious life, a life in which he gets to do glorious acts at Troy, but does not get to live beyond the Battle of Troy, and perhaps does not even get to see Troy fall, which is all the tragic, all the more tragic. And so the other way of life for him is to leave Troy, and Thea is only three days away, and he suggests that perhaps he will simply get into his ship and leave, though he vacillates on this when he talks to Phoenix later. He suggests, he will then suggest that perhaps they will make the decision in the morning, whether they leave or whether they stay, indicating that He's sort of speaking on the fly that he has not yet made up his mind. And of course, he does not necessarily want this second fate, which is to grow old, but to lose his chance at glory. And so to live an old and long life, but to have no glory in the world. And so what's sort of interesting about that is in book 11 of the Odyssey, when we see him in the underworld, he will have completely reversed his position. For one, he will... He will no longer believe that the cowards and the, um, and the heroes, even though he now sees that the cowards and the heroes do get the same treatment, he will no longer believe that any life on earth is not worth it. He will, in fact, now believe that even the life of a, a slave to a poor farmer would be superior to, um, to being dead. And so one understands that Achilles is the sort of person who always sees the best in the situation that is not his, and so is full of envy and resentment. And so he, he sees Eden everywhere but underneath his feet, regardless of where he is. And so the grass is always greener on the other side for Achilles, and we have objective proof of that. 
All right, so in the next episode, we'll talk about Phoenix's speech and the interplay between Phoenix and Achilleus. Aias the Greater will have a chance to talk, but he won't have much to say, which the Athenian playwrights will give him much grief about in the later uh, dramatic tradition. And so we will also see um, the report back. We'll see how Odysseus conducts himself, is mentioned as leader, indicating that reason leads the Achaeans in their decisions, but Achilleus is not led by reason. That's certainly true, and that he's led by anger, which is more the province of Ares. And so, Diomedes will also have something to say, indicating his increasing and uh, continuing to increase uh, forethought and judgment, and thus position in the dominance hierarchy, because forethought and judgment are major aspects of competence, and that is what moves one moves one up a dominance hierarchy or a competency hierarchy, as it could be said which obviously is what men at war are striving to do, to be the most competent, because the most competent will end up winning. And so what that competency is, is what is at uh, being debated now. Is it simply pure strength? Is it the ability to order and strategize best? It will end up being the ability to intelligently adapt to a situation in a new way that the opposing force is incapable of appropriately adapting to in uh, um, enough time, it will be an uh, it will be an IQ game. It will be a, a G-force game, or, or a G-loading game. Uh, Odysseus will push the game of war ahead too fast for the Trojans to keep up. And well, we'll talk about that quite a bit, not only uh, near the end of the Iliad, but also uh, when we talk about the time between the Iliad and the Odyssey and the falling of Troy, and also when we talk about the Aeneid. Um, much later on after we go through our Odyssey lectures. So, this has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 031, on Homer's Iliad, book 9, part 1, the famous embassy to Achilleus. And so, we'll return to this next time. Please share, please like, and please have a wonderful day. Goodbye.